one of my friends convinced me. He says, listen, uh, on the way back to Baltimore, I went to Morgan State. Shout out to any bears in the house. There we go. We got one. <laughs> so on my way back to Morgan State, my friend said, listen, let's not take the turnpike. Let's take 295 because they are never, ever, for any reason, any cops on 295. Mistake number one, never listen to that. Never believe that, right? So we were driving on 295, and uh, it's a highway that runs basically parallel to the turnpike. And uh, we were going, and for 20 miles, I didn't see any cops. 30 miles, I didn't see any cops. And finally, I said, listen, let's turn this thing loose. There's no cops on this road. So 70 miles an hour turned to 80, 80 turned to 90, 90 turned to 100. Mom, you definitely don't want to listen to this part. 100 turned to 115 miles an hour in the Blue Pearl Mitsubishi Galant. Now, I saw something about 10 seconds later that put the fear of God directly deep within my soul. On the left side of me, I saw a cop with his radar gun pointed at me. Now, in one split second, I saw my life flash before my eyes because it really didn't matter if the cops caught me. Like, if my father found out that I was going 115 miles an hour, being arrested for reckless driving would have been the least of my concerns. So right then, right then and there, I, I, I froze. My entire life flashed before me. My hands gripped the steering wheel, and I had no idea what I should do next. And lo and behold, I saw an exit. About, 400, about a couple hundred yards in front of me, I saw an exit. And I had, in this place, a moment of decision. I had to decide. Either I can slow down and let the cop get me, and I saw him getting in his car, and he was pulling out to come get me, or I could go for it. Now, which one do you think I did? There we go. I went for it. I totally went for it. And I gunned it, got into the right lane, got off on the exit. And by the time I got off, the cop still hadn't even, uh, he didn't even know what type of vehicle it was. And we raced into the, uh, uh, off the exit, got to a Best Buy parking lot, went to, ran through the, uh, through the parking lot, put the car in park, uh, ran out the car, ran in Best Buy. And for about a good hour and a half, I was looking through... <laughs> looking through the CD collection at Best Buy, <laughs> going through it alphabetically. I can tell you every Luther Vandross album, every song in order to this day, because I remember it that well. Right, and then on my way out, we left like an hour and a half later, and I was terrified that there was a SWAT team outside, <laughs> like outside in front of the car. But you know what that was for me? It was a moment of decision, right? I, at that place, I couldn't remain neutral. I couldn't just uh, allow things to develop as they uh, were going to go on on their own. I had to decide. Now, I've had a couple of other moments of decisions, uh, moments of decision in, in my life, and thankfully, none of the rest of them involve uh, police chases or, or, or uh, reckless, reckless driving. Uh, but there were times in my life where I've had to make a decision, where something happened or, or something came up, and I knew at that moment that I could no longer remain where I was. I had to choose either to slow down or to go for it. Now, one of these places, uh, these decisions came in college. Uh, like some of you guys in here, I grew up in a Christian home. Uh, my parents made me go to church every Sunday. And uh, even though we went to church and even though we had a lot of things that were buried deep inside of us, faith hadn't been something that I had personalized yet. So I went to college, and I did what a lot of kids in college do. I went and partied and went crazy. And then one day, through a series of events, I found myself at a Bible study. Now, it feels as crazy as for some of you that are in church today, right? Maybe you, you swore that you would never go to church, and you wrote off church for the rest of your life, and that's basically how I felt at that time. 
And I, and I found myself at this Bible study, and I knew when I was there that uh, I was starting to feel and, and wrestle with truths about who Jesus was, that God was starting to show himself to me at that time. And I knew I could no longer remain neutral. I knew I had to make a decision, right? Either I was going to slow down from uh, the, the reckless living that I was going on, or I was just going to go for it. Now, thankfully, in, in those moments of decision, I, I chose to kind of to, to follow Jesus, even though I knew the decisions that he was going to call me to do were going to be uncomfortable, and even though I knew the decisions that he was going to ask me to do would be difficult. See, a lot of us have moments of decision. Uh, some of us in here are single because even though uh, you found somebody that was great, right, and you were all over Instagram with, you know, pictures with you and Bay, right, y'all, and everything was, everything was gravy and everybody was looking forward to it, and you told your parents all about this person and your friends and everybody else knew about them, but something happened in the relationship, there was a, a character flaw, something about them, something about the way they saw the, light, the, the world and something about the way you see the world that you knew you had to make a decision. Either you would ignore it and uh, to your peril, uh, that you would ignore it and you would just go through life as if it didn't happen, or you'd make a really difficult decision. Now, some of us, a couple months later, a couple, months, a couple years later, after you've cut some knuckleheads off, you wake up in the morning and you say, that was the best thing you ever did. But at that time, it was a tough decision. Now, some of us also, and this is somewhat of a heavier topic in our marriages right now, there could be something that you're going through right now in your marriage or something that you've gone through in your marriage where it was a moment of decision. Something happened, and, and the person finally showed you who they really were, and they disappointed you, and then you have to decide, how am I going to treat this person in light of the fact that, they, that they've disappointed me, and they really aren't all what I thought they were cracked up to be? Now, others of us know what it feels like to have a moment of decision in our careers. Uh, you might have gone to school for something that you've uh, studied for years and for years and for years, and you get into this career or you get into this profession, and deep down inside, uh, it could be through a series of events, uh, you're now faced with different opportunities to go in a different direction, something that is completely different than what you've studied or had been trained to be, and this might involve a pay cut. It might not uh, involve as much financial security, and you're in a moment of decision where you have to decide, what am I going to do? I can no longer remain neutral. I can no longer uh, just pretend like everything is everything. Now, there's also these spiritually defining moments, and I've spoken to a lot of you guys in here, obviously, and, and many of you guys are at this place right now where uh, either you've uh, been wrestling with something that you, you heard when you were a kid and now it's being brought up, or something that goes completely against what our culture says, or it could be something that's brand new to what you've heard, and you know what? You're at a place right now in faith where there are some decisions that are in front of you and they don't seem easy to make. They don't seem like they are something that you can just easily just fall into. If you do these things, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be uncomfortable. But Jesus tells us something in, um, in the Gospels. He says, if you abide in me, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So what he's saying is this. Even though this light is bright, this light that I'm shining in your eyes is really, really bright and it's really uncomfortable. If you stay there, if you stay there, then you're going to know the truth. And guess what? That truth is going to set you free. And it might not be overnight, and it might not be uh, over a week, but it's certainly something that's going to set you free. Now, throughout Jesus' ministry, um, he was consistently putting people in positions that they were in spiritually defining moments. Because when Jesus came and hit the scene, uh, he didn't come to a people that had it all figured out. Much like you and me, uh, we don't have a lot of stuff figured out. And the way they saw God and the way we see God oftentimes is so far apart from the way that God actually is. 
So when Jesus would see somebody, for example, and they thought that God loved rich people and hated poor people, Jesus had to put these people in these spiritually defining moments to show them who God really was. Or, or they believed that uh, it, what really mattered was that you washed your hands before you ate. And Jesus came and put people in these spiritually defining moments to let them know, listen, it doesn't matter whether you wash your hands, use Purell. The things that defile you, man, they come from the inside out, not from the outside in. And for a lot of us, we're in these spiritually defining moments where we have to wrestle through a lot of discomfort. And guess what? A lot of conversations with Jesus are pretty rough. Now, we all have this mental image of who we think Jesus is, and oftentimes that picture of who we think Jesus is is way different from the reality of who he really is. See, the Jesus that we've made up in our minds is the Jesus from Hollywood walks around uh, with a flowing robe and chancletas, and Jesus is you know, timid and mild, and he just doesn't offend anybody, he doesn't bother anybody. But this is a Jesus that was killed. He offended so many people that by the time they got uh, ready to release a prisoner, either him or a murderer, the entire crowd sc uh, screamed, kill Jesus of Nazareth, let the murderer go, kill this dude. See, a lot of his interactions weren't as nice and as neat uh, as we would love for them to be. Now, Justin has read a scripture a little while ago, and it, uh, to me, it's one of the epitomes. It almost defines uh, uh, where Jesus puts somebody in a spiritually defining moment, in a place where they have to decide. They can't remain neutral. And the decision that they're going to make at that moment is going to determine the course of their walk with him. Now, uh, we're in this series called um, The Jesus You Thought You Knew in, in, in Mark. And really, the reason we're doing this, the, uh, this entire series, is so that we can come face to face with who Jesus really is, and we can get rid of all of the, uh, you know, the images we might have had in our head, the things that we might have thought about Jesus, or the things that we wanted to make up about Jesus, the things that we wanted to be true about Jesus, and we're just going to take a look at him face to face and let Jesus be Jesus. Now, uh, Justin read the scripture, and I, I want to reread a piece of it, Mark 10 and 17. It says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his, his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, with Jesus, uh, this, this first part of the scripture, I want to stop here for a quick second. This guy was extremely sincere. He wasn't somebody that was coming to argue with Jesus about, uh, like, temple law. Uh, he was very sincere. He comes and he, like, falls on his knees before him. So I want to put that in, in, in context before we dig, uh, dig a little deeper. Why do you call me good, Jesus, an Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Teacher, he declared, all of these things I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Now, one thing you lack. So this guy probably, this guy came up to Jesus. He was extremely excited. He was a religious person, and he really did want to know the answer to this question. So he asked Jesus a question, and he, uh, Jesus uh, agrees to give him an answer, and I'm sure he pulled out his iPhone. He was like, great, one thing I lack. All right, let me open up the, let me unlock it, make sure my fingerprint sensor is working. All right, good. The notes tab is up. One thing, go for it. Jesus starts talking. He says, go. He's like, all right, cool. Sell everything you have. I wonder if the guy even, he, put his, he had to put his phone away. I would have put my phone away like this. Let me just ask a couple clarifying questions before I start writing what's next. Right? Instead of giving him one thing, he gives him three things. He says, go sell everything you have, 
Give it to the poor that you may have treasures in heaven, and then come and follow me. See, the answer is pretty crazy. Um, and uh, the man is uh, absolutely struggling with his answer uh, that Jesus gives him. And ultimately, what I, what I really wanted to see from this scripture, first and foremost, is that this is not really about money. This is not a money scripture, although it's about money, but it's not about money. Ultimately, what Jesus is talking to this man about is his loyalty. Where is your primary loyalty? Now, we live in a day and age where, you know, pastors set up GoFundMe accounts to buy $60 million jets, right? And I would never ask you guys to buy me a jet. The Apple Watch comes out, I would, I would take that. God wants you to buy me an Apple Watch, but not, but not, a, but not a jet, no. So I do want to be very clear. We've taken an offering already. This is not about a bait and switch to, to get you guys to give, to give money to us. And, and I don't even think Jesus was about that either. He tells the man, you know, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. It wasn't even about Jesus benefiting financially or directly. This was not about money. It was about this man's priorities and his loyalty. What was his, prior, uh, his pr primary loyalty? Go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Now, this guy had to be thinking, all I did was come to Jesus and ask Jesus a simple question about what I have to do, right? This guy was expecting Jesus to give him like an 11th command, right? So, you know, don't steal, don't kill, honor your father and your mother, you know, make sure you clean up after yourself, something like very light that he might have been missing. And Jesus takes it and goes from zero to 100 real quick, <laughs> right? And here's why. In order for me and you to connect with Jesus on a level that he wants us to connect with, he's going to have to deal with our primary loyalties. In order for me and you to connect with Jesus at the level that he wants us to, to connect with him at, he's going to have to deal with the things that we are loyal to, the things that give us the most significance, the things that are the deepest inside of us. And this is what Jesus is doing in this example. This man uh, wanted to know about eternal life. And he gives Jesus, uh, in his mind, what he thought about eternal life was something far different than what Jesus thinks about eternal life. So he might have been thinking, what do I have to do to go to heaven one day, right? What do I have to do that so when I'm 90 and I die, I can go to heaven? I'll close my eyes and everybody will preach a good, uh, good funeral sermon that I'm in heaven with God. But eternal life to Jesus is something way bigger than just going to heaven uh, when you die. It includes that, but it, ex it far exceeds that. John 17 and 3, Jesus is praying and he says, now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, Jesus Christ is going after this guy's primary loyalty, and in a lot of ways, he's talking to this man, and he's looking over his shoulder at you and at me, and he wants to know, he wants us to deal with our primary loyalties. Now, what is Jesus saying about the scripture? See, there's no place in the Bible before where Jesus ever asks somebody to go into voluntary poverty. Right? Jesus didn't say, hey, as you have read in, in Leviticus or Numbers, he doesn't say any of that stuff because there's no other place where Jesus uh, asks somebody, where God asks somebody, a prophet, the Psalms, there's no other place. And even going forward in the ministry and the life of Jesus and of the early church, there's no other place where they, asked, where, they, uh, where they made people go into voluntary poverty and give away everything that they had. If somebody wanted to do that, that was, that was on them for sure. But essentially what Jesus is doing here is Jesus was showing this man the thing that actually he was loyal to. And Jesus' reaction later on in the scripture is, uh, is this. He asks a question, right, after the man went away sad, and he says, um, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to inherit eternal life? How hard is it for those people who put their faith and their trust in money to connect with me on the level that I want them to connect to me, at, to really know me? 
Now, Mark says it in, in uh, verse 22, uh, at this, this man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. And Jesus tells this dude something that he can't accept, and he walks away. See, in his moment of decision, he walked away. Jesus didn't allow him to stay neutral. Jesus didn't allow him to just keep on going on the course he made him decide, and the man decided to walk away. Now, the disciples' reaction is crazy, and they're asking, yo, so if this is, like, this is pretty impossible. Like, what are you saying here, Jesus? Like, how hard is it for the rich to enter into the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, um, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of, an, of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And then the disciples were more amazed, and they said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Now, this is the epitome of an uncomfortable conversation. And for us, I don't know what your prayer life looks like. I don't know what, uh, when you pray to God, what God says to you or what you uh, feel like you're wrestling with the truth of who God is. But guess what? It's not a bad thing when you and God are having some uncomfortable conversations, right? If, if the God that you pray to disagrees with everything that you agree with, then chances are you, that God is the God you just created in your own mind. Now, Jesus is really digging into this guy's life. Uh, Jesus is really digging uh, at a point that is so uncomfortable that it makes a lot of us cringe even when we read the scripture. But Jesus does this, and there's a verse in, uh, earlier in, in, the, in the chapter that says Jesus looked at him and he loved him, and then he told him to go sell everything he had. Now, why does it say that Jesus looked at him and he loved him before it tells the instruction? Uh, because Jesus is a, a good surgeon. He's a good doctor, and uh, Jesus' uh, remedy, his, the thing that he prescribed for this man was the only thing that was going to root out the deep-level priority uh, and loyalty issues that this man had. Years ago, um, I had a, a really bad abscess in my mouth, and I couldn't sleep at all, and um, I'm an idiot when it comes to stuff like going to the dentist and the doctor. Like, I'll go weeks after I should have gone, like, for almost everything. So, you know, I'll have a toothache and think, oh, it's going to go away on its own. Like, when has a toothache ever gone away on its own? Uh, never. So by the time I finally told, like, my mother about it, I was a teenager, um, I had a big abscess growing on the side of my jaw. And those things are pretty dangerous. And we rushed to the dentist, and I got there, and it was too late for, like, a lot of, like, Novocaine or, like, a nice procedure to, to pop the abscess. He just had to take his scalpel and stick it in my jaw. Now, even though that caused an incredible amount of pain, it's exactly what needed to be done. And because that guy was a good dentist, he did it. He didn't, let me, he didn't let me remain infected. And then he gave me a shot in that same gum to help uh, numb the pain that was going to happen. And then he took out that little drill and that beautiful noise that we all love to hear, the dentist drill churning against your teeth inside of your jaw. And he went deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And just when I thought he was done and I would breathe, he would go deeper and deeper and deeper. Now, it didn't matter that he saw me wincing in pain and grabbing at the arms of the chair. He knew that there was decay in my mouth that he had to get out. And if he was a good dentist, he would keep on going well past the pain, well past the discomfort to get the decay out of my mouth. Now, here's what Jesus is doing in this scripture right here. Even though this is incredibly uncomfortable and incredibly painful for this man, he digs and he digs and he digs and he digs to get the decay that's out of this man's life. See, Jesus, first and foremost, wants to deal with our primary loyalty and to, and to root out a whole lot of stuff that doesn't belong there. But secondary uh, to, to that is that uh, th there's a tension in this text that uh, we said this scripture is about money and it's also not about money. Uh, but in some ways, it is about money. And, and what do I mean by that? 
Andy Stanley has this really great quote um, that I think is really appropriate to what we're talking about today. He says, nothing competes more for your love for Christ than the pursuit and the management of money. Right? Nothing, compares, nothing competes more for your love for Christ than the pursuit and the management of money. And here's why Jesus allows this man to have a defining moment financially, and here's why Jesus will allow us to have fi- uh, uh, defining moments financially. Where Jesus will allow your money to get funny, right? right? Where Jesus will allow you to be in situations where you have to choose where your uh, allegiance goes. Because Jesus knows that even though there are a lot of things that can tempt us, money has a very particular and peculiar way uh, uh, of testing us and of drawing our allegiance and competing for the love that we have for God more than almost anything else. Now, um, let me just step off my high horse for a second and say that I can think of certainly on more occasions than I want to admit times that I've kind of told a little white lie to get out of paying more money for something, times that I failed this test a thousand times. So this is not me saying, you know, riding on a white horse um, with, a, with a feathered cap on, looking down on you guys. Now, I know how hard it is, and, and it might not be money for you, the thing that uh, competes for your love and for your attention for Jesus Christ, but for me, man, so many times, more times than I'd want to admit, that's exactly what it is. Nothing competes more for your love for Christ than the pursuit and the management of money. And here's what Jesus is saying here. Um, our, our external actions are internal indicators of what we love. Our external actions, how we spend our money, are internal indicators of what we actually love. Because what you love and how you spend your money go hand in hand, right? So, you know, I joked a little bit earlier about the Apple Watch, um, and I am an Apple fanboy to the core. I would buy Apple socks if they came out tomorrow, I promise you. And deep down inside, I would believe that they were magical. Like, it wouldn't even be just me buying them. I would be fully convinced that I would change the world wearing Apple socks. But a couple of weeks ago, I told my wife something that she almost had to go to the ER in, a, in a, a panic attack. I said, you know what? Since the baby is coming in two months, I shouldn't buy the Apple Watch. We've got to make sure the baby has everything he or she needs. Right? See? See, my, Jessica and I are madly in love with this baby before he or she has even arrived. And what you love will absolutely alter the way you spend money. So even though I'm an Apple fanboy to the core, I have no problem waiting for two months after it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I have no problem uh, just completely getting rid of this purchase because it doesn't matter. What you love will determine how you spend your money, right? If, if, if you are madly in love with somebody, you have no problem showering them with stuff. And Jesus here is showing this man that the reason you have such a difficulty with your money, the reason you have such a difficulty, uh, the reason you're so saddened by this is not simply because of the command. And the command is extremely hard but it's also because you have put your faith and your trust in money. What you love will determine how you spend your money. Now, a lot of us have um, thought about this scripture in in different ways, and I've heard this this next part talked about in a lot of different ways, and I want to be gentle about this. Now, it sounds extremely difficult. When you think about this, like, well, if Jesus is asking this guy to, you know, to get rid of all his money and give it to the poor, like, this is extremely, extremely, extremely hard. And the answer is yes, it is absolutely that, that, that hard. Now, um, Jesus says something in, in Mark 25. He says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for someone who is rich to enter into the kingdom of, of heaven or the kingdom of God. Now, over the centuries, people have said a lot of like really cute and uh, clever ways of describing the second part. They say, well, well, technically the camel uh, wasn't you know, really a camel. 
right? Uh, there's a word in Aramaic that sounds like camel, but it really means thread. And what they were really saying is that Jesus was saying it's harder for somebody to put a thread through the needle than it is for a rich person to go to the kingdom of heaven. And that doesn't make sense because those words are not uh, the same. Well, I've also heard uh, that uh, Jesus wasn't really saying the camel of, uh, you know, camel can't go through the eye of a needle. What he was really saying was there's a gate called needle. And in order for the camel to get there, it had to crawl on his hooves. He had to crawl to get in, and it was uncomfortable. So in order for a rich person to go to heaven, you've got to be uncomfortable. And that's not what it means either. That's something that sounds good, uh, but there's really nothing in, in, in history that, that would even corroborate that. Now, there are certain sayings that we have in our, um, in our vernacular today, like a snowball's chance, right? Like a snowball's chance in a hot place doesn't exist, and it's impossible for that snowball to survive. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Uh, this, this, it's a snowball's chance, and you know what? that this is going to make it. So what is Jesus getting at here? Uh, he's, he's saying that there's something radically wrong with all of us, but money has a particular power to blind us to it. In fact, it has so much power to deceive us of our true spiritual state that we need a gracious, miraculous intervention from God to see it. And without God, it's impossible. Without grace, it's impossible. Without a miracle, it's impossible. Now, uh, this rich young ruler was a perfect candidate for uh, this story. He was somebody that on the outside uh, had everything going on for him, right? He was rich. Uh, he was a ruler. He, you know, he had everything on the outside. And he, not only was he a rich young ruler, but he was also a very pious, a very religious man. So in that way of doing things, he said, you know, Jesus, I've kept all these commands since I was a boy. Uh, he knew the way of the rabbis. He knew all of these things. And uh, essentially, this guy was a perfect uh, candidate for this story. See, for Jesus to reduce this guy means this, that the way to me, for, for me and you to get to God can't be based off of the stuff that we do. The way for me and you to get to God, the way for me and you to connect with God in a way that he wants us to connect with him to, uh, to connect with him, means that it can't be based on solely what we do. Now, what this guy wanted to do is he wanted to add another requirement to the list. He wanted to add another notch in his belt of all the things that he had done to, in order to get close to God. And Jesus reduced him in one way to show him this, that there is nothing that we can do to bridge the gap. And in order for us to have a relationship with God in the way that God wants us to have a relationship with him, yes, it's, of course you shouldn't kill anybody or steal or do any of these things, but it's also going to require a miracle. It's also going to require grace. Now, a lot of us think that the nature of our relationship with God is, I woke up this morning, I went to church, I read my Bible, I gave money to a homeless guy on the street, I've done these things, and now God accepts me. But this right here is an example of the ridiculously high standard that God has. And if you want to rely on what you have done, go ahead. Here you go. Give all your money away. Give it to the poor. Let me know how this works out for you. See, Jesus gives the scripture in Luke 6 and 28. He says, the man, uh, blessed is a man who builds his house on, on rock. And when the rains and the storms and the wind comes, his house will stand. But the man who builds his house on sand, when the rain and the wind comes, it blows away. Now, if what we are building our lives on is money or our achievements or in anything else that we can fabricate, we're building our lives on sand. And what Jesus is calling us to do is to build our lives on rock. And he is, our, he is the rock. He is the only thing that will actually endure and will, and will keep us uh, in, in every single time, in every single situation. God doesn't need our money. Uh, God doesn't need uh, any of these things that, uh, you know, he didn't need this man's money. But God wants us to, to root out. God wants us to, to place our faith in, in our lives, not on what we can do, but to look to the grace of another. 
Now, um, there's a, something that went on later in the scripture where it says this man went away and he was sad. Uh, and the better word for the word sad here in the scripture is grieved. Um, in the same way that you see this word grieved used when Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane, uh, this is how deep uh, money is embedded in this dude's life, right? So Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane, and it says he grieved, and he sweat blood, uh, tears, of, I mean, he sweat, sweat of blood from his forehead, and he was incredibly grieved over what he was about to experience. Now, Christian theology teaches something called uh, substitutionary atonement, and that's a fancy way of saying Jesus in your place. If you deserve this, Jesus took it. If we deserve death, Jesus took it. If we deserve being displaced and being disconnected from God, Jesus took that. So when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was facing the thing that was going to displace him forever. Uh, that was going to dis displace him. Uh, that was going to, uh, for the first time, separate him and the Father. And he grieved it. He grieved being separated from the Father. And he did it for me, and he did it uh, for you. Now, what this rich man does is he grieves uh, losing his money. Because to him, his money was the core of who he was. It was his identity. It was the essential essence of his nature. He grieved it. The saddest part about this whole story is that this man uh, was sad only thinking about what he had to give up and not the opportunity that he had to follow Jesus. Now, it's not a coincidence that every single time Jesus warns about sex or romance, he warns us 10 times about money because money has a particular power to uh, dissuade us, to, to pull us off track, to distract us, to make us feel a false sense of confidence or security or importance. And Jesus doesn't want us building our lives on that. Nothing competes more for your love for Christ than the pursuit and the management of money. God doesn't want us building our lives on that. Uh, there's a scripture that we talked about a little bit last week, uh, comes from Mark, uh, Matthew 4. And in Matthew 4, uh, we see Jesus being tempted uh, by the devil. He's having a conversation with the devil in the wilderness. And uh, we went through a couple of temptations last week. And, and I want to read this temptation uh, this week because this is, the, the, this is the voice that you and I hear when we're, we're tempted to put our faith and our confidence in money. Amen. Matthew 4 and 8, it says, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. See, Jesus was taken to see all the magnificence of the power of earth, and the devil basically said, look around you, all of this stuff I'm going to give you if you bow down and worship me. I want you to put your significance in the stuff that you have. I want you to put your significance in the things that you're able to buy. I want you to put your significance in how you look and, and, and what circles you're allowed to, to, to circulate in. I want you to put your significance in these things, and Jesus obviously pushes them away, says, away from me, Satan, you know, as, as it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now, if, I have this, if I've had this conversation one time, I've had it a million times, and I know this to be true for so many of us in this room, man, so much of our culture is about comparisons of what you have. So much. What are you, you know, how much do you make? Where do you work? What school did you go to? What's your apartment building? Do you have an elevator? Do you have a doorman? Do you have any of this stuff? What kind of shoes are you able to buy? What kind of clothes? Where'd you go on vacation? You fool, coach? Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> cool story. So much of our culture, so much of our, in some ways, identity is rooted in the things that we can buy and the way money makes us feel. And guess what, brothers and sisters? Jesus doesn't want us living in that prison. 
Now, if, if you guys were worried that the application for today's message would be, hey, sell everything you have, you know, sleep on an air mattress and eat oodles and noodles for the rest of your life, then you're right. We're going to have a bucket down here. And no, I'm kidding. <laughs> kidding, kidding, kidding. But I do believe that God, uh, in, in a lot of ways, uh, will allow us to be in these defining moments where you and I are going to have to decide, really, what's our, where's our loyalty? What's the thing that gives us identity? What's the thing that gives us security? And you know what? Maybe uh, God is calling you to give more to a charity or to a fund. And and listen, I think Renaissance is a great, great, great place, obviously, and we would love for you to partner with us financially here. But listen, if you want to give to Restore, an organization in New York that works against sex trafficked women, give. If you you want to work with uh, the American Cancer Association, great, give. But don't let money have this power over you. Don't let money have the the power over you. And when you're in that defining moment, you decide to keep your money and to hoard it because ultimately that money is going to make you feel significant. Man, don't let money win. Man, don't let money uh, have that power to blind you and to make you feel uh, like you are um, secure in all these different things and important. Man, don't don't, don't let money win because that stuff starts to own us. And what Jesus, when he approached this man, really the question was he was asking him was this, Man, who do you belong to? If you belong, uh, if you say you belong to God and you, and you really want to serve God, then great. Get rid of everything and then come and follow me. And Jesus was showing this man what he, what he belonged to. That man belonged to his money, so he went away. He was grieved because he couldn't fathom the thought of being separated by his money. Now, I, I want us to think about this right here. Ultimately, what Jesus is asking this man is this question right here. If everything else is gone and all we have is you and me, is that enough? If everything else is gone, if the money and the cars and the mansions and the servants and all these things, other things are gone, if it's just me and you, is that enough? Man, let me, let me pray for us. Father, I, man, I'm always humbled by passages of scripture like this that are so, so, so sometimes difficult to digest. Um, Father, I, I confess that so many times I don't feel like just you, you are enough. I feel like there's so many other things I need to add on to my life to make me feel important, uh, to make me feel significant. Uh, God, there's so many other things that are competing for my love and for my affection for you. God, like a good dentist, like a good doctor, Father, I just pray that you're patient with us. God, that you would continue to root out the things in our lives that are, are competing uh, for our love and our fidelity to you. Father, have mercy on us, God. I, I pray for you to give us encouragement that, God, we would see the benefits and the, and the brilliance of what it means to know you, to, to live our lives with you, the King of Kings. Father, we thank you because you are gracious, and we thank you that we, you accept us, and we thank you that you, uh, you look after us and you care for us. And God, we can be confident of this one thing, that you who have begun a good work in us, God, you will complete it. Father, complete the work that you started in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.